Welcome back to Historical Context. Today, we continue our colonization of New England unit. We're going to shift some gears today in Massachusetts and move away from the Plymouth Colony and the start of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, where we last left off, the Plymouth Colony had kicked out John Oldham, John Lyford, and Roger Conan had left for Cape Ann. Today we're going to discuss that expansion of Massachusetts a little bit more. Cape Ann, which we had talked about last time, uh, was settled in 1623-1624 but did not last. And many of those settlers, instead of turning around and going back to England like many of our other failed colonies had done, actually just moved a little bit south and founded the town of Salem in 1626. Now Cape Ann was supported by the Dorchester Company. This was an independent company of shareholders that had received permission from the Council of New England and if you remember from prior episodes the Council of New England was a reorganized version of the Plymouth Company and they got permission to colonize the area. Unfortunately the company failed which was likely a leading indicator to the failure of the colony. Meanwhile, in England, Charles I was doing something very significant in the cracking down of the Puritan religion. Many Puritans in England began to wonder if their only hope of practicing faith lied in the New World. One such person was a Puritan minister by the name of John White. White was a principal organizer behind the failed Dorchester Company, but its failure did not deter him from continuing to try. In March of 1628, the Council of New England issued a land grant to a new group of investors. So now, a new investment group, a new group of people, a new company. The investors name a London merchant by the name of Matthew Craddock as governor. Approximately 100 settlers are sent to join Roger Conant and the few from Cape Ann at Salem. In 1629, a second group of 300 colonists comes to Salem from England. So at this point, Salem already is larger than Plymouth. And it's just an important highlight as to how the persecution of the Puritans is what likely caused the Massachusetts Bay Colony to grow faster than that of Plymouth. But there was a big problem here, and that is that the company still lacked a royal charter. And if you think about it, many people may think, well, who cares? But it presented a problem in the event that another company tried to colonize or claim the area. So now you've got to convince Charles I to provide a charter to these Puritans. Surprisingly, Charles I grants a royal charter on March 4th, 1629. He likely believed that the purpose of the colony was for trade and commerce versus religion. In the charter, John Endicott is named the governor of the colony. Endicott had emigrated to Salem with the first 100 settlers. 
It's important to note here that Endicott is the governor of the colony, while Craddock is the governor of the company. The charter refers to the company as, quote, the company of the Massachusetts Bay. And they end up be being the Massachusetts Bay Company, but it's the first time it's actually referred to. Just six days after the charter was issued on March 10th, tensions between Parliament and Charles I reached their limit when the Speaker of the House of Commons, under orders from the King, tries to adjourn Parliament. The Speaker was physically held down by three other members while a series of motions were passed against Charles I. The King dissolved Parliament that day and it would not meet again for 11 years. And I want to say at this point, Charles I's decision to dissolve Parliament is really a huge rift in the history of England and the cause of the English Civil War. But his reasoning, which is written in a speech, is really, I think, a cornerstone to American history because it really represents that moment of Puritan crackdown and people fleeing England for America. And so this Friday, we're going to have a special edition of Historical Context where we cover Charles I's speech on the dissolution of Parliament. And I hope you check it out and like it. It's going to be a new feature that we consider in the podcast for future episodes. So back to the situation here in Massachusetts Bay. The changes in the political environment in England got the Massachusetts Bay Company, based in England, thinking about moving all of the governance to the colony. So now they're thinking about doing something completely out of the ordinary and moving everything over, uh, not just the business activity. In the fall of 1629, the Cambridge Agreement is reached, and this allowed those in England who were leaving to have the ability to buy stock from the shareholders in the Massachusetts Bay Company who were staying behind. Enter John Winthrop. He was among this group of new shareholders leaving England for Massachusetts. Winthrop was born in Suffolk, England in 1588. His father was a lawyer and extensive landowner whose family had also run a successful textile business. He went to Trinity College where his father was a director, but he left in 1605 to marry his wife. Three of their five children survived infancy and his wife died in 1615 after the birth of their last child. He remarried, but his second wife died in childbirth a year later, and that child sadly did not survive. Winthrop became a lawyer and married his third wife in 1618. Winthrop lost his job during the Puritan crackdowns, and therefore, like other shareholders, favored the charter 
and the governance of the Massachusetts Bay Colony to be moved to the colony itself. He was elected the second governor of both the company, replacing Matthew Craddock, and the colony, replacing Endicott, and he merged those roles into one since the governance was relocating. Winthrop would write a history of New England that would be the first writing of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and a cornerstone to telling the story of its earliest days. His writings would begin in March of 1630. Little is known about the colony prior to Winthrop's writings, but they did have a harsh winter in 1629. Winthrop would leave his wife, who was about to deliver the couple's first child, in England and go on the voyage to America. Winthrop's writings begin on the ship to America, and on April 10th, the ship runs into some discontent amongst its passengers, which this discontent is handled a little bit different than the Mayflower. Let's have a look. This day, two young men, at odds and fighting, contrary to the orders which we had published and set up in the ship, were adjudged to walk upon the deck till night with their hands bound behind them, and another man for using contemptuous speech was laid in bolts till he submitted himself and promised open confession. So a little less, I don't know, a little less tact than on the Mayflower when there was some discontent there. On the 11th of April, an illness went through the ship and several people got sick, including children. Winthrop details uh, how those people were treated. Let's have a look. Our children and others that were sick and lay groaning in the cabins, we fetched out and having stretched a rope from the steerage to the mainmast, we made them stand, some of one side and some of the other and sway it up and down until they were warm. And by this means, they soon grew well and merry. So some 17th century colonial medicine there for you. I've never heard of this tactic. I have heard that a little fresh air can help you when you're not feeling well, but this certainly is something a little bit different. Now, the ships had to endure a storm on April 15th, which actually separated one of them for three days. And then Winthrop's writings get a little scattered. He moves, he, you don't see much substance there until May 6th, when he notes that the moon was smaller than any time he saw it in England. The weather was still cold, and they saw birds flying and swimming despite being far from any known land. And that's interesting because if you go all the way back almost a year ago to our Columbus unit, and that would be 140 years prior to this, they were also talking about birds flying around and thinking that they were near land long before they actually were. And that thinking still existed almost a century and a half later. On May 12th, a landman struck and injured an officer during an altercation. The admiral ordered the landman tied by the hands with a weight around his neck. The punishment was overturned by 
none other than John Winthrop himself. On May 21st, it was revealed a servant had sold a box to a child for three biscuits a day and had been trading the biscuits with others on the ship. His hands were tied, a basket was placed around his neck, and it was filled with stones for two hours. And Winthrop allowed that one to happen. While Winthrop's wife was home in England, pregnant, expecting the chi uh, first child, that didn't mean everybody on the ships was not. On May 28th, a child was actually born uh, within the fleet. So families were coming over with Winthrop. The group spotted land on June 9th, and they ended up at Cape Ann on June 11th. They continued south and actually ended up running into some Plymouth colonists who were out fishing on June 12th, one of which was Isaac Allerton, who came over on the Mayflower, and we're going to be talking about a little bit in next week's episode and probably a little more during the Plymouth discussion. While notes from June 17th to July 1st are missing, it's presumed that Winthrop arrived at Salem during this time because that is where he's at when his writing continues. Winthrop arrives at the colony and he is ready to take his place as governor. And we will find out how that goes a little later on because we are currently at a stopping point for Massachusetts Bay for this particular unit. So the next time we talk about Massachusetts Bay, we will pick up with the governorship of John Winthrop. Next time on Historical Context. <music>